Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours, real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM, Radio Free Lexington. Hello and welcome to another episode of Office Hours. My name is David Cole. I'm here with board runner Brian Connors Makey and our first guest today, Matt Wilson of the Geography Department. Department. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks, David, for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you know what? Let's get right to the interview. What do you say? Sounds good. All right. First question. You work in geographic information sciences, specifically right. what your ANS faculty profile calls uh, critical GIS. Yeah. What is critical GIS? All right, so to, to sort of answer that, ge geographic information systems are a technology, um, and they're a technology used primarily for mapping. Uh, so the idea behind critical GIS is to bring both a kind of technical perspective and a more ethical or critical perspective to the use of those technologies. GIS is a multi-billion dollar industry, mm -hmm. and here at the University of Kentucky, we're quite interested in how to both use those technologies with a great deal of facility, but also have students uh, be able to understand the broader social and political implications for that technology's use. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I definitely yeah. have a better it's, idea. It's, it's like making maps with a with a consciousness. Oh, there we go. All right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are there any courses available at UK like now that right. involve yeah. critical GIS? Yes, absolutely. So I, I develop and teach a class called Digital Mapping, uh, which is Geo 109, and it's taught to almost 500 students every year. Um, it fulfills the UK core arts and creativity requirement in, uh, in the university. Uh, and in that class, students can learn how to use some of the cutting edge uh, mapping tools, mm -hmm. whilst also sort of learning how these forms of geographic representation um, have sort of hit a fever pitch. Mm -hmm. And to sort of understand how these new forms of, of technology are actually changing the way we interact with one another, changing the way we sort of are surveilled by the state and corporations who are using these forms of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so students can take that class, Geo 109. It's, it's available within the UK core. Um, and it prepares them for further courses within the geography department, courses like Geo 309, which is taught by myself and a few other faculty in the department. Uh, Geo 309 is an introduction to GIS. And, and with that comes a heavy dose of a kind of critical perspective on th this tool, its importance in society, and how it is both um, making the world a better place and causing uh, a great deal of irreparable harm to it. What got you personally interested in studying GIS? Yeah, so I, uh, I've been a sort of triple threat geography major my, my entire life. So I, I came into undergraduate study as a geographer, really interested and passionate about uh, the mapping of everyday space. Um, and when I went to graduate school at the University of Washington to get my master's and PhD, I was really compelled and interested by how this very uh, expensive and professional-grade tool set was differentially accessible, meaning that some people had a great access to this tool who could produce excellent mappings and spatial analyses of certain social phenomena, and other people were sort of left out of the room, couldn't afford the tool, couldn't figure out how to use it, didn't have the necessary expertise to be able to make compelling use of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I became interested in kind of the, the broader ramifications for this global industry. Um, and for me, the, the field of critical GIS really took, took root at the University of Washington and became this kind of thing that we can both study and participate in. Yeah. All right. Well, that's really interesting. 
Why did you decide to pursue it at the scholarly level? Well, for me, it's always been a question that's motivated scholarship. Actually, I think more interestingly is, is how these things that we might dust off in the ivory tower can actually become applicable in the everyday lives of people that we serve within a flagship university like the University of Kentucky. So for me, the more interesting question is how do we take these kinds of lofty ideals and technological practice and bring them to bear upon real-world issues that are affecting Lexingtonians, people in Fayette County, and, and the broader Appalachian region. Mm-hmm. So in that context, I've created a class called GEO 509, uh, which is an upper division course taught to geography majors and, and other interested parties who, who want to sort of take these tool sets and apply them to real-world community problems here in Lexington. Mm-hmm. So students in the past have mapped things like um, food deserts, or they've mapped issues related to youth uh, activities in after-school programs, mm-hmm. and try to use these mapping tools as a way to actually cause positive social change in, in Lexington. Wow. All right. Would you say there's one element of what you're studying that fascinates you more than the others, or is that like picking a baby for you? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, I think, you know, th- this changes year to year, uh, but for me right now, I'm fascinated by consumer electronics. Uh, So the emergence of things like the iPhone, which was announced with great fanfare a few weeks ago, uh, manages to sort of downplay the the broader privacy and uh, corporate implications of of this as an object, right? An object that gathers and hoovers up a great deal of information about us, personal information about us. And and one aspect of that is obviously our, our locations. Um, and uh, the, the sort of lack of a public discourse about what technologies like this, consumer electronics like this, do for us in terms of uh, collecting our personal information, including our locational information, is something that I'm increasingly fascinated by. There's definitely a lot more to think about nowadays, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, your profile also says that you've got an interest in doing cross-disciplinary readings mm-hmm. uh, with, quote, the implications, or sorry, into the implications of digital information technologies. Could you elaborate on what that work is? Okay, yeah. I mean, geography is, uh, it's one of the more interdisciplinary disciplines in the sense that uh, many students at the college level are not really exposed to uh, some of the more complex issues in geography until their second or third year of college. Uh, And so as a result, geography has had to sort of play ball, you might say, Mm -hmm. with a whole variety of, of subfields. Here at the University of Kentucky, we have one of the most preeminent uh, human geography programs in the country. Um, We also have an incredible physical geography uh, component. And because of the marriage between these two subfields, people interested in demography and the social qualities of everyday life, and people interested in the environment and sort of naturalistic systems, Mm -hmm. because of that, we, uh, our our graduate students have been quite prominent in organizing what's called the Political Ecology Working Group, which sponsors a yearly conference called the Dimensions of Political Ecology. Mm -hmm. This is one of the many examples, I think, within the College of Arts and Sciences of how our faculty are constantly looking for ways to work uh, across the aisle, you might say. And geography is a kind of perfect place, a kind of microcosm to see that working together between the humanistic sciences and and the naturalistic or or, or socialistic sciences. Yeah, okay. Are there any specific examples you could give us of like cross-disciplinary readings you've Mm -hmm. done Mm -hmm let's say, within the past year or two? Are you talking about actual texts? Yeah. Okay. That you've used in your own work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, people like Nancy Catherine Hales, who is trained in the humanities, but it writes extensively 
in what is called the digital humanities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great book, My Mother Was a Computer, uh, which sort of motivates a kind of, um, you might say, a curiosity about how digital technologies greatly impact not only uh, our social organization, but impacts our personal identity, right? Uh, and so within geography, that becomes quite important for if we're to actually study and situate these new forms of technological innovations like GIS, we have to understand how they both impact social organization as well as how they impact or reflect our own personal identities. Um, so Nancy Catherine Hales is a great uh, kind of off-the-shelf off read uh, for anyone interested in sort of these cross-disciplinary issues around digital information technologies. All right. It's something you said a few minutes ago is that your students have been working on these maps of the Lexington area. Mm -hmm. uh, have you worked on any of these yourself over the years? or? Yeah, no, this is, uh, so you're, you're talking about the class GIS workshop, GO509. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a class uh, whose model I borrowed from the University of Washington when I was a graduate student. So I've been working on these kinds of community-based partnerships in the classroom, not always getting them right, mm -hmm. but at least attempting them uh, every year, every spring. Uh, I've, so I've, I've been working on these for almost five years now. Uh, tr the tricky part is really finding ways that the skill sets of our students can really impact local communities. Uh, I think it, under, the, under the rubric of service learning at the university level, we oftentimes throw students into environments that will actually not greatly impact the communities they're trying to serve. So instead they turn into sort of research safaris where you send students out to, to pick up trash or paint and picket fences. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what's happening is it's creating this kind of um, dependency that is not sustainable necessarily mm -hmm. uh, for these community-based organizations. So it becomes, it becomes more important, I think, for the faculty member in this situation to actually do some advanced planning with community-based organizations to let them know what kinds of skill sets our students offer and then have, them, have the organizations opt in to that experience as opposed to pushing our students into the experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of my role in these kinds of community mapping workshops. It's to sort of facilitate and have a sustained conversation with community organization leaders to try to figure out what we need to, what kinds of problems we should be able to address and trying to tailor our students' capacities to, to fit those needs right. as opposed to just throwing students directly into uh, organizations that may or may not be able to support that influx. All right. Now, when you have sent your students out with a pocket full of dreams and the mission to make a map, uh -huh. they come back to you and they turn these in. Have you gotten any that are just surprising? Like, you're just like, this is a very interesting map, or this is a crazy map, we'll say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, th that happens all the time, right? The, um, you know, my, my students spend close to 12 weeks working with a community organization to design these particular graphics. Um, so they're not only graphics, right? They're also, they come with a fairly sophisticated spatial an analytic component to them. Uh, so in the past, I've worked with um, a group that was mapping stray animals in the city. And it was this kind of curious problem where the city government was not uh, able to make the case that they needed to have animal control services in the city as part of this austerity movement, cutting mm -hmm. the budget, so to speak. And so they came to us with their quote-unquote database, which was really just a cardboard box filled with slips of paper for every stray animal that was collected in the city. <laughs> and so my students worked with this, with this group for the better part of 12 weeks, uh, trying to, one, formalize a database, and two, build uh, some basic analysis to, be to better understand the spatial pattern of, of animal uh, issues or animal-related stray animal issues in the city. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it, it, um, it clustered really interestingly in, in certain parts of the city, and it sort of allowed city leaders to better see how things as mundane as animal control are actually a, a, a social justice issue, right? Uh, mm. That there are social and economic issues at play in who has and can maintain the ability to take care of a furry critter in their house, right? And this, this is not, this is something that cuts straight along class and, and, and social lines. So that was, that's sort of an interesting moment where you, you, know, you didn't really imagine that a cardboard box filled with slips of paper about, about stray animals would lead to such an interesting and, and compelling rationale for why we need uh, increased attention to social and, and environmental injustice. Mm-hmm. It really is interesting, some of the things yeah. you can find in old boxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we're here with Matt Wilson on Office Hours. We're going to take a short break and come right back. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL 88.1 Radio Free Lexington. We're here with Matt Wilson, still talking geography. Thanks again for coming on the show, Matt. Hey, thanks, David. Let's move into what I think will be a super interesting topic here. Last year... That's a heavy billing. It's about to get heavy. (laughs) Last year, you were a guest lecturer at Harvard University. You might have heard of it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I mean, I'm not well-informed, but the listeners, uh-huh. they know. <laughs> what was that like, yeah. being a guest lecturer at Harvard? Oh, it's crazy, man. You know, I, <laughs> I grew up in a little village called Pumpkin Center, Missouri, mm-hmm. population six. Um, and uh, to be able to be, you know, a phd professor uh, at the University of Kentucky, let alone uh, travel to such a world-renowned and historic place as Harvard University for, for all its warts um, was really kind of fascinating. And I'm, I'm so thankful that uh, my colleagues in the Department of Geography and in the college uh, were so willing to, to allow me to kind of venture uh, out, of, out of the Appalachian region to go teach for a year at Harvard University. Um, Harvard's a, a curious place for a lot of reasons, but for geographers, it's a bit of a, uh, a mission in the sense that geography is the only discipline at Harvard University, our only department at Harvard University that has closed its doors uh, in 400 years. Uh, so it's the only department uh, within Harvard's curriculum uh, that no longer exists on campus. Um, and that's a really curious thing, you know, just as a fact, right? Because, it, you know, geography uh, is, is a really incredible uh, discipline in which to explore some really basic questions. Um, and for Harvard University not to have a geography department is, is startling, right, to start with. So mm-hmm. um, what, what, they've, what they've been doing at Harvard over the last few years is trying to sort of in fits and starts be able to kind of bring back geographers every once in a while to sort of offer courses in the curriculum um, and to try to inspire a kind of geographic sensibility on a campus that is tackling some really heavy uh, world issues. Um, and so I was invited to uh, teach a course within Harvard College, which is the undergraduate portion of Harvard University. Uh, Harvard, the Harvard College class was called Maps and Mapping. Um, they had heard, Harvard had you heard of the success of my digital mapping class here at the University of Kentucky, and they really wanted to kind of inject some of that Kentuckiness mm-hmm. into the Harvard curriculum. Who would? Um, why wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. So you know, I you know, with a heavy heart, I left the University of Kentucky for a year uh, and set up shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and offered a class twice a week in the fall of last year uh, called Maps and Mapping, um, which was basically just giving Harvard College students a kind of outlet uh, to explore some of these issues around uh, maps uh, and their broader social and political import for. Uh, a changing and rapidly changing society. 
So in addition to, to teaching that class at the undergraduate level, I, I was also invited to be a visiting assistant professor uh, within the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, um, which is really uh, the kind of um, one of the only places at Harvard University that has a kind of institutional memory of what it was like to work with geographers. Uh, after, after Harvard geography closed in 1948, uh, the Laboratory of Computer Graphics and Spatial Analysis was formed at Harvard in 1965. Um, and it was within the Graduate School of Design that you begin to see some of the beginnings of digital mapping. Um, uh, Harvard University uh, attracted some world-renowned scholars to, to sort of figure out in the 1960s what it would mean to use these newfangled devices called computers. What would it mean to use computers to better um, to better create maps, right? To, map, to make maps of, of phenomena that were otherwise much tri trickier to analyze. Mm -hmm. uh, so in 1965, they formed this laboratory within the Graduate School of Design. Um, and I was fortunate enough to come, come and, and, and teach a graduate seminar last spring within the Graduate School of Design on the topic of critical and social cartography. And within that class, my graduate students worked to kind of unearth that history um, and try to think through what it meant in in the, in the space of the late '60s, around incredible social unrest, to sort of ad advance new methodologies in computer-based mapping, mm -hmm. um, and so as a part of that, I, I I have the kind of distinct pleasure of also hosting next year the 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 50th anniversary conference at Harvard for the 50th anniversary of really the digital map. Um, one of the preeminent. Uh, thinker and, and, and sort of act, uh, you might say, a computer technician. Uh, Jack Dangerman is going to be one of the keynote speakers. He was a student at the Harvard Labs in the 1960s, and he went off to form a, a little software company called Esri uh, in Southern California, which is now the global uh, leader in geographic information systems. And so, so Jack is, is, is coming. I can call him Jack because I've talked to him on the phone. Uh, Jack, Jack is uh, coming to Cambridge in the spring to, to be a part of this conference that we're putting on, which is a bit, a bit of a birthday party, you might say, the 50th anniversary of the computer map. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that was my year at Harvard, kind of a bizarre <laughs> place to find oneself, but um, uh, things that I, I, will, I will definitely cherish for the, for the remainder of my sort of scholarly life, I think. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you learned anything new during your time there that you've brought back to UK? Hmm. Uh, you know, they, I think, you know, Harvard was really interested in tapping into a geography department that they saw to be a really fascinating and important geography department. So I think for them, it was more about funneling in all of the interesting uh, scholarship that was happening here at the University of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, Sure, I've brought back some bits and bobs, some mementos of my time at Harvard, and uh, it's. I feel so fortunate to be the geographer, right, <laughs> at at a university like that for a year. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I definitely have brought back a, a whole host of connections and and resources that I think will will advance. Um, uh, the scholarship of our students and my colleagues here in the department. So, uh, you know, I I, I really looked lo was uh, sort of looking forward to returning to Kentucky, mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that uh, it just sort of underscores how important this department is uh, within the scholarly life of, uh, of the discipline of geography in North America. So, before we go, we definitely want to talk about. Uh your time as the undergraduate chair of the geography department? Yeah, that was sort of like a, a welcome home present, I think, from the <laughs> chair of my department. Uh, you know, welcome back to Kentucky. You're now the chair of undergraduate studies in the department. Um, no, I, you know, I really, for me, 
having taught a number of intra-level courses in the department, being able to be a part of the conversation to kind of push forward uh, a number of issues that we have on campus, would, you know, one of which is retention, which you'll hear faculty talking at nauseam about, mm-hmm. uh, but also just trying to figure out more creative and innovative ways to get undergraduate students involved in the, in the research that we offer within the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and so my, my responsibility, my pr- primary role as, as chair of the Undergraduate Studies Committee within geography is to recruit, right? find and, and support uh, students who are really interested in taking up the geography banner. Um, I think we're a kind of underknown but very powerful discipline within the college. Uh, I don't think undergraduates typically come to the university anywhere to study geography. I think they kind of dis- they tr- fall into geography uh, kind of as a as a second or third choice. They didn't they don't really know or know exactly what you can do with it. Um, and so I think my responsibility as chair this year is to kind of figure out how to change our public perception on campus so that undergraduates are not. Um, worried about career prospects within this particular degree field so that undergraduates get excited and jazzed about all the interesting uh, critical and technical skill sets that they come away with when they study in a field like geography mm-hmm. and just sort of better understand at the undergraduate level uh, how important this department is to the scholarly life of geography, the, the broader discipline. Um, we have a phenomenal graduate program and I think what we're hoping to do is to take some of those nuggets uh, from our from our graduate program and figure out how they might be planted in in really important ways in the undergraduate program. Are there any new initiatives you've got going as this new chair? Yeah, if I chair sounds very fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I think one of the things we're we're trying to do within geography is develop some new kind of cutting edge degree programs. Um, and so we're in the process, myself and a few other colleagues in the department, are in the process of developing not only an undergraduate certification in mapping, right, which will be useful for those people who want to major in the applied sciences or in engineering or in public health, but also want to pick up some critical and technical sensibilities with regard to mapping. Not only are we doing it at the undergraduate level, but we're also uh, developing some new graduate curriculum. Uh, We realize, as many departments in the college realize, that uh, offering online courses and online degree programs is sort of a future of the university that we can't deny. And so we're very proactive in geography, and I think in the College of Arts and Sciences more generally, to create new innovative online degree programs that will help people in Lexington, but as well as you know worldwide, get access to some of the, the cutting edge faculty that we have in our department. Uh, so we're, I'm in the process of working with a group called the New Mappings Collaboratory, Sounds cool, huh? It really does. I'll get you a sticker. Uh, but New Maps uh, is is sort of developing this curriculum that'll be both a graduate certificate and a master's program that'll exp- that'll give uh, students or potential students um, a kind of leg up in what it would mean to make maps in a digital age. Mm-hmm. We're no longer carrying around pen and paper when we when we draft maps. We're now working in, on maps on our mobile devices. We're increasingly having to use computer code as a way to design our cartography as opposed to um, pen and ink, right? Uh, so so this, this new maps program is really about developing curriculum that will push forward a new generation of cartographers that exist primarily uh, in a kind of digital space. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what, that's what we're kind of jazzed about right now. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, to, to develop this curriculum and get it, and get it pushed through the various committees on, on campus because we think it's going to be exciting and we're, we're eager to kind of get this out there. It's a, it's a rapidly changing uh, dis- discipline. Uh, and we want to make sure that we 
here at the University of Kentucky have sort of the, the best and the brightest minds set upon what it means to make maps in, in, a, in, a, digi in a digital culture like this. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. And yeah, maybe you can sign up. Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show, Matt. Yeah, thanks, uh, David. You're listening to Office Hours. We've been talking with Matt Wilson. We'll be back after this. Hello and welcome back to Office Hours, the arts and sciences talk show where we go beyond the syllabus and talk to faculty. I'm here with Brian Connors Mankey, running the boards. My name is David Cole, and our next guest, Dr. Matthew Giancarlo of the English Department. Welcome on the show, Dr. Giancarlo. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's go right to it. Your ANS profile mentions that you've been doing research on this 15th century poet named Peter Eitley. Now, I did some cursory Googling on this guy. And all I could find was that he wrote a poem called Peter Eidley's Instructions to His Son. And that's it. Can yeah. you introduce us to Peter Eidley? Well, it's, uh, it's not surprising that you didn't find out much about him because there's not a whole lot out about him. There hasn't been much scholarship on this figure. And uh, Peter Eidley was a poet from the mid-15th century whose main job was to be a bureaucrat. That is, he was a government official. Um, he probably flourished between the years 1439 to 1461. We don't know when he was born, but we figure that he probably died sometime around 1473. And he wrote one main poem, which has been titled by editors, uh, Instructions to His Son, and that's what you found reference to. But other than that, he didn't do a whole lot. Um, we know about him from governmental records. We have several manuscripts of this poem, but that's it. So my research has been to go back and maybe do a little bit more work on this figure and to bring his work to a wider audience. Now, other than just wanting to flesh out this guy's story a bit more, are there any specific reasons that you want to study at least specifically? Well, um, my field of expertise is medieval English literature, uh, and in particular, later medieval English literature. So I do most of my teaching and research in the literature that was written in the 14th and 15th century, that is the 1400s and the, um, uh, the 1300s and the 1400s. I was doing all kinds of research in that area when, um, interestingly, back in 2006, it came to my attention that a brand new manuscript from that era, that is from the mid-15th century, had come to light and been sold at auction containing the text of Peter Italy's poem. Now, in our field, when a new manuscript comes uh, to light that nobody's ever heard of before, it's pretty exciting. It's a new thing. Um, sometimes uh, families will hold on to heirloom manuscripts for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And then if they decide that they want to bestow them to a library or if they need some money and they sell them at auction, then they will come to light and people will find out about them. Um, it's not very common that this happens. So this manuscript on this poet uh, had been acquired by the library at Yale University, where I knew some people. And they told me that it had um, been acquired by the Rare Books and Manuscripts Collection. And so I went and took a look. What I found was that this had provided, this new manuscript provided a new witness to the poem. Um, and it provided some variances in the text. And then with a little bit of digging, I discovered that another new manuscript had been discovered around 1971. And that manuscript contained about 2,000 lines of previously unattested poetry by this figure. 
And then before that, another small manuscript with some scraps of Peter Italy's poem had been found in the 1940s. So after a little bit of research, I found that uh, this poet, um, whose work had last been edited in 1930s, uh, had a number of new manuscripts come to light, that there were lines of his poetry, in fact, thousands of lines of his poetry that had not been edited and nobody had seen. And I figured, well, that's a, that looks, sounds like a good job to me. I think I'd like <laughs> to go and take care of that and see what I can find. Where are you hoping to take this project in the future? Do you want to bring it back to UK, maybe start a course, or is this purely academic? Well, it's a good question, David. This poet, as I said, he was, his main job was to be a bureaucrat in the mid-15th century is what you might think of as on the canonical margins of literature. In English departments, we normally teach for our students the big figures in literature, and maybe some of the smaller figures as well, but usually you'll get the big names, whether it's a Geoffrey Chaucer or William Shakespeare or a Jane Austen, and the big books that everybody knows and loves. A figure like Italy, however, with his poem, Instructions to His Son, it's really rather obscure, as you discovered when you were researching it. And it's interesting mainly to specialists for the light that it can throw on the era, um, what people read and what they thought at the times, um, and sometimes also for contextualizing some of those more popular and better known works. So this project, it's, um, I've been working on it here at the University of Kentucky since I arrived in 2007. The M.I. King uh, Rare Books Library here at Kentucky has been wonderfully helpful. Um, I have acquired some microfilms of manuscripts at other collections, and the uh, King Library digitized them for me, so I actually use them for my research, and I can also incorporate them into my teaching. I'm going to be producing a new edition of Italy's Poetry, which I've been working on now for several years. And in the long run, maybe some of it will make it into the classroom because it is kind of interesting to read things that everyday people were reading in the 15th century and before. All right. You've dedicated a lot of your academic career to teaching and researching English language and literature, ranging from Old English and Arthurian legend to the Middle English of Chaucer's time period. Mm -hmm. We talked about him very briefly. How did you become interested in this topic? Well, to be honest, it just kind of grew on me. When I was an undergraduate, I was an English major, and like a lot of, of undergraduates in the humanities, I wasn't quite sure what sort of career I wanted when I, when I graduated. I knew that I was good at writing, and I enjoyed reading, and I also enjoyed critical thinking and the kind of critical analysis that one does in English classes. And I figured that I would either go into political science or I would maybe go on to law school. So as an undergraduate, I took a number of courses in early literature because I was required to. Uh, my major had a pre-1800 requirement, and so I took one or two classes in Old English, and then I took another class in Middle English literature and translation. I found that I liked those so much, I decided to take some courses in Chaucer. I discovered that I loved studying the early periods of the language and reading the original Old English and Middle English. And so I took a course in linguistics to kind of learn about the study of language. And at the same time, I was interested in having at least a rudimentary knowledge of some of the other languages that uh, authors deal with. So I took some courses in Latin and German and Italian. And before I knew it, by the time I was a senior, I had put together a curriculum 
that really prepared me very well for doing the kinds of things that teachers and professors do. So when I was a senior, and this was back in the early 90s, it was a choice between perhaps going on to graduate study uh, in my field or going to law school. This is kind of a long story, David, but to fill it out, I'll tell you about that choice as well, which is that I, over the summer, I worked uh, in Houston, Texas, where I grew up as a clerk for some law firms. And I did that to make money so that I could afford to live when I went back to school during the school year. But at the time, I also got a really strong sense of what it was that lawyers did and the kind of work that they had to do and the kind of lifestyle that they had. And I realized that uh, that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> Having been exposed to it, I, I sort of knew that um, uh, of the things that I wanted to do, if I was going to be working that hard, that I would want to do something that I really, really loved. And as it turned out, it was clearly sort of scholarship, language, and literature that was the thing that I loved. And so that's what I pursued. Now, would you say there's a specific element of what you're studying or have studied in the past with the language and the old English stuff that you prefer as opposed to other parts of it? Like, what's your, what is your favorite part is what I'm asking. Um, this is going to sound like a canned answer, David, but to be perfectly honest, I love it all. <laughs> Um, I, I love teaching aspect of it. I love the research aspect of it. I love the just getting prepared and reading the scholarship of my colleagues and other people who've worked in the field. I love sharing that with students at the introductory level, the intermediate level, and the advanced level. Um, there really isn't anything about my job uh, that I dislike. I say this cautiously because I'm hoping my department chair doesn't hear this, but even the administrative and, and bureaucratic responsibilities are things that I have enjoyed. I've enjoyed working with students. I've enjoyed revising the English department curriculum. Um, for me, it is very fulfilling. Uh, you get to do different things at different times. So when I am teaching students, I go back and refamiliarize myself with the books that I teach and that I read. Uh, and the things that I've learned about them. When I'm doing research, I go to the bibliographies, the libraries, my colleagues' work, and try and get to know what they're doing so that I can better prepare myself for producing uh, my own scholarship. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about what we do at the University of Kentucky as faculty, I find it very exciting when we're able to introduce new things and to offer classes that take students in directions they never thought they would go, much like my experience when I was an undergraduate. All right. Awesome. We're going to take a short break. We're here with Dr. Matthew Giancarlo of the English Department. You're listening to Office Hours. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Office Hours. My name is David Cole, running the boards now. Cheyenne Homan, we have many staff changes here just to keep it flowing for you. Uh, our guest still, Dr. Matthew Giancarlo of the English Department. Thank you again for coming on the show, Dr. Giancarlo. It's my pleasure. Uh, now, before the break, we were talking about specifically your research on this fella, Peter Idley. And we uh, mentioned that the one work uh, that we could really talk about is uh, his advice to his son. Right, right. And I'm curious, can you tell us what kind of advice he gives to his son? <laughs> That's a really good question. This is a book that was probably written in the mid-15th century, probably around the year 1430 to 1450. And it is a book that compiles some earlier works, um, some books that had been written earlier in the 14th century 
and uh, very early in the 14th century, in fact, around 1307. So on the one hand, it's a collection of earlier what's called advice literature, which in the Middle Ages was pretty common. It was these books and manuals which would give people advice about, you know, be frugal with your money, or uh, make sure you get along with your neighbors, or uh, make sure that you serve the king well, this kind of general advice. And Italy brought this together under a frame that he was writing a manual for his son, Thomas. And his son presumably was either a child or maybe even an infant when he wrote it. And so he tells him things like, well, be respectful of your parents, make sure that you do all of your work and your responsibilities. Uh, one interesting thing that he says, which I think resonates um, with modern audiences, and I know it resonated with me, I thought it was very funny, is where he tells his son that it's good advice for him to, when he grows up, study the law, that is, to become a lawyer, uh, which at this time in the mid-15th century was, in fact, a route for people of the middle classes, men of the middle classes, um, to gain some prominence, some prestige, and some economic position. Um, but then he follows that up uh, rather humorously by saying that if his son decides not to follow the law, uh, that he's going to disinherit him. <laughs> so uh, some things over the times, they never change. Here's this dad trying to pressure his son uh, into going into a particular career because he thinks it's going to make him beneficial. Uh, it's going to put him in a good position later on in life. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, he tells him things like uh, avoid going and spending all of your money at taverns. Um, don't talk too much in crowds where people will overhear you and things you say might come back to bite you later on. If you're traveling with strangers, don't necessarily tell them your destination because you don't want people you're not sure of to know where you're uh, going to be housed at night, where they can come and rob you. Um, so it's points like that, actually, when you read advice uh, of that sort, when you think, wow, maybe times have changed. And it's interesting to think about how um, relations between parents and their children would have had a different kind of inflection than the relationships that we have today. Now, something that gone over in, a, I'm in a class of yours, let's be completely transparent here, is that some of these uh, advice works, some of these works that lay out rules do so in the framework of a narrative. Right. There's a right. story attached. Can, yeah. can you tell us anything about that? Like what kind of stories are attached to these works? Um, in the case of, once again, of, of this writer, Peter Italy, I will try and think of maybe one story, uh, one or two stories. Part of the work is structured by the Ten Commandments, you know, the traditional commandments from the Bible. And so he goes through the Ten Commandments and he talks about what they are and he gives advice uh, based on what those injunctions are. And so he'll tell little stories. Uh, based on the Ten Commandments. This style of writing was called exempla, exemplary narratives. And that was the point. It was the point to be a short little story that would carry a pretty clear moral that could be remembered and carried on in the future. And then that way the story would have the kind of ethical impact that a, just a mere advice or a mere injunction uh, might not have. So one that comes to mind, for example, is under the commandment to love your mother and father, that is to uh, respect your elders and your parents. And Italy tells the story, it's a traditional one, about a man who took his father in when his father was old, and this man also had a young son. So you can imagine that this is um, a middle-aged man who's got a young son and he has an elderly father. And he is taking care of his elderly father, 
But the man and his wife get tired of how much the elderly father costs them and the fact that he takes up so much room. And so they slowly but surely take away all of his luxuries and his amenities. And before you know it, this poor old man is kept in a drafty part of the castle uh, on a very uncomfortable bed with just a stone floor and stone walls. And he's given very little cover, right? Um, and the man says to his son, well, all he needs for a blanket is this cloth sack. And he gives him a sack and says, go to your grandfather and put this on your grandfather because that's really all he needs. So the son, now the little boy, takes the cloth sack as the story goes and he cuts the sack in half. And the father, the man who owns the castle, says to his son, well, what did you do that for? And the little boy says to his father, well, you can give my grandfather this one half of the sack, and I'm reserving this half of the sack for you when you're old. Right? Italy takes from that and he says, you know, what you do to your parents is what your children will do to you. So you have to think of it in those kind of terms. It's a very powerful little exemplum, right? It's, it's a very interesting little story. As well, if you put it in the context of a society that had no social security, no retirement plans. Um, and when one got old, you weren't necessarily sure of how you were going to spend your last days. And so these kinds of advice manuals, in addition to giving sort of advice about, oh, well, don't spend your money bad or don't misbehave, would sometimes carry these narratives of very interesting narrative structure and power. All right. Now we're running a little short on time here, but before we go, I'm curious as to whether or not you could give us an example oh. of these older languages that you've been studying for so long. Oh, well, um, uh, I enjoy reading Old English, which is the literature and language of the time of Beowulf, uh, and that's probably anywhere from the 8th century to the 10th century. Um, Middle English is generally counted to be from the period of about the 13th century to the middle of the 15th century. Um, when I teach the survey class for the first half of British literature, I generally ask my students to read Chaucer in the original language. And so we will often read the opening of the Canterbury Tales in the original language. Would you like me to maybe recite the opening of the Canterbury Tales for you? Absolutely. OK, well, let me see if I can get it in memory here. Um, the opening, of course, is the introductory lines where Chaucer is setting up the pilgrimage, that is, that all of the tale tellers in his story are gathering together and they're going to go on a trip to the cathedral at Canterbury um, to pay respects to the remains of St. Thomas of Becket. And so that's why it's called the Canterbury Tales, because that's where they're going to. But in the opening sentence, which is a long 18-line um, piece of poetry, um, he sets up the pilgrimage as happening in springtime. And so uh, he talks about how people want to go on pilgrimage because that's the time when everybody gets out and goes and travels uh, and is happy that it's spring. So let me see if I can get this in my memory uh, for reciting it. Juan that April with his shoulders sota, the drochte march hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein its wish liqueur, which virtue engendered is the flour. One Zephyrus ache with his sweet breath, inspired hath in every holt and hath the tundra cropus, and the younger sonna hath in the ram his halva corsi runna, and smaller foolers mark in melodia that slepen o the nicht with open ear, so pricketh them natur in her courages, 
Van longen folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmeres for to seek in stranger strandes, to ferne halwes, cuth in sundry landes, and specially from every sheer is ende of Angeland to Canterbury they wende, the holy blissful martyr for to seeka, that him hath horpen, Juan that they were seeka. Thank you so much for that. That was great. My pleasure. Oh, we're out of time, but thank you again for coming on the show, Dr. Giancarlo. It's been fun. You've been listening to Office Hours on 88.1 WRFL. See you same time next week.